Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, yeah, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is possibly a cure for insomnia. This is built upon a foundation of deep unprofessionalism. How's everybody doing today? What is your status out there? What's your status update? My name is Brad Listy, and uh, I'm reporting to you from the city of Los Angeles. That's where I am. That's where I'm seated. I have a great show for you today. Catherine Faw Morris is my guest. Catherine Faw Morris. Faw is the middle name. She's a young uh, writer, young author, originally from North Carolina, and her debut novel is called Young God, and it's available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Catherine and I, uh, we're going to be talking in just a little bit. Uh, first, I want to mention that I, I receive a lot of mail, a lot of electronic mail, as many of you know, a lot of email and whatnot from listeners. I always appreciate that. I love hearing from you guys. And a while back, uh, I got a video sent to me uh, uh, from some inebriated listeners. I think Spencer Madsen sent this to me. 
for those of you who know Spencer. I'm pretty sure it was him. One of them did. He shot it. Because <laughs> I can hear his voice on it. So uh, these people, they were drunk. I think they were drunk. They were chemically altered. And uh, they, they videotaped themselves with a mobile telephone. Uh, possibly they were on hallucinogens. Maybe it was uh, Molly, as the kids these days call it. <laughs> Ketamine. I don't know what it was. Uh, let's put it this way. They were enthusiastic. They were high-spirited. And they were on a rooftop in New York City. I can't remember if I've shared this with you guys. Have I done this already? <laughs> Is my memory that bad? Uh, I was just going through some old files. I was doing some uh, some spring cleaning. And I happened upon this video, uh, like in a folder on my desktop. And I thought I would share it with you, like the audio portion of it anyway, because I find it amusing and I would, uh, I would hate for it to go to waste. This is the kind of thing that people send to me on occasion. In addition to the more traditional, like, epistolary approach. And frankly, I wish I got more of this kind of thing. I like it. I want to know what, what's happening out there. On street level. <laughs> I want some documentary footage, is what I'm saying. So here we go, folks. Here are some other people, listeners from New York City. Uh, they are on a rooftop under the influence of chemicals. I can't. Oh, you can turn the op. You know, the OPP jokes are, are kind of inevitable. Feels a little hacky. Dude, you're taking a bind, bruh. <laughs> I'm taking a video for our, our friend in LA. I don't want to. I don't want to blind Tycho, but I want to get. I'll just get her butt. Hi, Brad. Okay, so they're they're basically just like saying hi to me in the beginning, and it gets better later. So I'm gonna fast forward just a little bit. You can't look at it. I'd like to thank Brad for the podcast. <laughs> I guess they might be mocking me. That's all right. I'm gonna take it. A little drunk mockery. It's fine. I like to thank my mom. I like to thank my dad. I like to thank the Listy. I like to thank my dads. I like to thank my moms. I like to thank my dogs. Okay, so this guy's the really the star of the show. Let's let let's let this guy do his thing. This is where it gets good. I like to thank my dads. I like to thank my moms. I like to thank my dogs. I like to thank my sisters. I like my whole family. I like to thank the other people and the other people on the fucking podcast. And I like to thank the monologues and I like to thank the dialogues. The trilogues, the trilogues, the trilogues, the trilogues, the trilogues. Yeah, see, this is where it feels like it's getting a little druggy. The trilogues, 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 made a video for me. Uh, I wish I heard from them once a week in that very form, like human formation, that particular assembly of human beings uh, under the influence on a rooftop once a week. That would be great for me. Anyway, I feel like that would do that. I feel like that would play well. <laughs> maybe you guys would like that. Maybe the, uh, maybe uh, the nation would embrace that. Uh, I don't know.
It's hard to say. My guest today is Catherine Faw Morris. Uh, her new novel is called Young God. I feel like I just made a very commanding segue right there. I feel like I just segued out of drunk people on a rooftop into uh, American literature. Very commanding fashion. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Catherine Fall Morris. Her new novel, Young God, is out there now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it. People are talking about it. I've been seeing it on my Twitter feed. And I'm very pleased that I had a chance to uh, speak with Catherine at this particular moment as she makes her debut. So uh, let's get on with it. Here we go. This is my conversation with Catherine Faw Morris, and her new novel, once again, is called Young God. I am in New York in my publisher's offices, uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, which I hope I'm saying right. I always feel like I say it wrong. And I'm in a, an abandoned office all alone. Okay. Is there anything in it, or is it just, like, completely vacant, like, vacated? <laughs> There's like an old computer and a phone and random books. Okay. That's about it. Like how, like we're talking like Commodore 64 or like, is it just like an old, I guess it doesn't matter, but, uh, <laughs> you are, you are debuting at FSG. Yes. Seems like a good place to land. It's amazing. I never thought that they would buy this book. I thought of it as kind of a weird art project that maybe some independent publisher would pick up. So yeah, the whole thing is amazing. Okay. So, and you are represented by Chris Paris Lamb. Is that right? Yes. Okay. I had yes. him on, I actually had him on the show a while back and, um, I, you know, you, if you follow publishing, you can't help but notice his name and because he's involved in a lot of, uh, big sales and his authors have done well. Like, how did you wind up with him? I actually met him at a, well, I went to Columbia for my MFA, Columbia University, and I met him at one of their parties they would have that were like mixers where agents would come and the students would have to approach them and pitch their books. It was really horrible and awkward. It's like, um, it's like speed dating. 
It is. It really is, except much worse. Um, so I met him there, and uh, the whole point is just to get this person's card as quickly as possible, which is what I was trying to do. And uh, as soon as I started talking to him and telling him about my book, uh, he told me he was also from North Carolina, which is where I'm from and where the book is set. And we bonded over that and over, I think, moonshine. And he gave me his card, and I emailed him like three or four years later, and he pretended to remember me. So that's how that worked. <laughs> okay, so wait, you got his card and you emailed him. It took you three or four years to get back to him? Yeah. So where were you? Because I wasn't done with the book. Okay, so you were working on the book while you were at Columbia, but you weren't anywhere near done. No. Okay, not and then at all. I read also that like this uh, book was originally, because it's a pretty lean book. Um, I don't know how what the word count is in its final form, but I read somewhere that uh, you know an earlier draft was over a hundred thousand words. Yes. <laughs> so um, you did a lot of writing and then a lot of cutting. Yeah, exactly. And I rewrote it like literally probably fifteen times. I would just scrap everything and start at the beginning again. So uh, so there was a ton of rewriting, a ton of. But once I actually started cutting, like, very mercilessly, it was done in six months. So once I started the cutting process, it was quick. Okay. But everything before that. <laughs> okay, but so how do you work? Because, like, just – like, I, I'm, I'm sort of like – I guess I work really slow. Like, getting to 100,000 words seems monumental. I guess it's monumental for anybody. But are you one of those writers who just lets herself go and you don't do a ton of editing and you just let it – kind of spill out onto the page and then you look at it and see what it is and try to cut from there? No, not at all. I'm very, I'm really a control freak and I think about the sentence a lot before I even type it and then I edit every day. Um, so I think it got that long because I was trying, I was like giving myself a word count every day and I was a student then and I was very studious about it <laughs> and I would meet this word count every day and just kept like piling up. Um, what was and the, this what, is over what was five years, too. What was the word count? I would try to write a 1,000 words a day, yeah. which I never do now. <laughs> yeah, I did that, too. Um, I did that, too, for my uh, book. I was like – I had, like, a little piece of paper, and I don't do that anymore. Like, why – I should get back to that. That's actually useful. <laughs> uh, it is useful, but then you feel guilty if you don't meet it, and then the next day I would, like, try to make it up. You know, it's just this whole, like, spiral of shame, really. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so. but guilt can be useful. Like, it kind of gets you in here. <laughs> And then the other yeah. thing, the other thing though about that is that I feel like sometimes you get into this like psychology where if you don't get your thousand words, you feel shitty. And then, uh, some days you just don't have the juice or the book is like resisting you or whatever it is. And, but, but you'll still want to get those thousand words to have that sense of completion. So you'll crank out like a thousand shitty words and then you'll feel this, you'll be in some sort of weird middle ground in between feeling satisfied that you hit your count and dissatisfied that, you know, what you just did was sort of useless. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I actually don't think it's a good way to write, but <laughs> at the time it helped me get that's how I got to 100,000 words. Is I okay, so, just kept doing that every day. So where so where are you now? Like what it like if you don't do that anymore, like what's the what's the better way? Well, I'm not sure what the better way is because it's all kind of torturous, but uh, I guess what I do now is I just try to come up with a goal for the day as far as like what scenes I want to accomplish and try to do that and not worry about whether and like how many words I wrote exactly. Um, but right now in general, I'm just being incredibly lazy and doing very little of anything. So but your book is rolling out. Like I think uh, I've talked mm -hmm. to authors. I mean, I always talk to authors who, or I usually talk to authors who are in this 
particular phase where like a book is out and they're doing press and whatnot. And I think you have to allow for that. Like you can't be, I mean, I guess some people are super type A and they're like doing a, a press tour and a book tour and they're writing a novel in their hotel room or whatever. But I think you sort of have to let yourself do this. Yeah, I'm trying, okay. but I still feel guilty that I'm not writing the other novels. <laughs> were you raised, were you raised Catholic? Do you have any like religious background? That, no, nothing. <laughs> Um, no, we were raised, you know, Protestant. I didn't even know any Catholics where I grew up. Uh, and it was not religious. It was just kind of like show up at church because that's the right thing to do. But, uh, so I guess like Protestant work ethic, you know, or something. Okay. But like, I, you know, I guess there's guilt on the Protestant side too. I always feel like it's the Catholics and the, it's the Catholics and the Jews who like have this like, you know, guilt in their DNA. It's like, you know, something inherent in being raised that way. But I suppose it's not just exclusive to them. <laughs> so uh you're from North Carolina. Yes. Where about whereabouts in North Carolina? Um, it's a very small town. It's in the Appalachian Mountains. Um it's called Wilkesboro and the county is called Wilkes County, which is what most people say is like I'm from Wilkes County. Not anyone knows where that is. But um it's very it's close to Virginia and Tennessee, it's kind of in the northwest corner of north carolina i think i mean i hiked the appalachian trail when i was just out of college so i think i i must have gone right through your neck of the woods i remember boone is boone in wilkes county yes it, no but that is it's close yeah and like the, the, <laughs> it's 30 minutes from boone okay and like the nanahala wilderness i was in the, that was where i was i was in the nanahala national forest or something but um beautiful country it is beautiful uh it is, and I didn't really realize that growing up. But now, when I go back, especially because I'm in New York all the time, it is beautiful. Yeah, when you leave like the, the suffocating, like urban uh, environment of New York, you get back, and it's like nice to be in the fresh air. And do you ever like have any any desire to go back? No, I have none. <laughs> Zero. Um, yeah, I really love New York, and I really just wanted to get out of there my whole life. I was kind of plotting that from a very young age, so. I kind of feel like I succeeded in that point at least. And, um, you can't go home again. Yeah. I, <laughs> I try to like at Christmas. Well, but. no, I, I get, you know, but you can't, it's hard to like, especially after you've left and you've moved to some place like New York, like if you're from a small town, like I, I sort of have that. I li- I grew up in Indiana and it's like, I live in Los Angeles and it's like, I, I don't think I could go back. I mean, I guess I could, Yeah. if I had to, I could, but, uh, it just seems hard to like wrap my head around. So, uh, as a kid, were you? Uh, did you have a happy childhood, or were you? I mean, if you were angling to get out of there from a young age, there must have been some part of you that was dissatisfied. Yeah, I think I've always been dissatisfied. Um, I, one of my earliest memories is we had these encyclopedias, you know, like the set or whatever, and I would just pick a letter and start reading about all the other places I could possibly have been born, <laughs> like anywhere, Iowa. Like I really didn't care. Um, so. It was, it was not, unha- like, uh, you know, I always had, I was provided for, I had a safe, clean home and, like, my, you know, parents that uh, read to me and stuff like that. Um, but I was, uh, I was just always, in the back of my mind, knew there had to be something better than this. I don't know why I thought that, but, um, yeah. What, I mean, like, yeah. So I like, always wanted to leave. What was the environment like? It was like, I mean, it was just hill country? Like, were you, did you have neighbors? You know, like, what? <laughs> Yeah, everybody always asks that. I did have neighbors. I lived like in town. Okay. Like you know, we had we didn't have a well. We had like town water and um. So yeah, I lived like in a subdivision, 
that we moved constantly. Like I probably lived in like 10 different houses or something. Um, Why is that? Uh, I don't know. I, my, I always say it's because my mother was an army brat and she was like just used to like picking up and leaving every four years. So <laughs> I, we were just constantly moving. I mean, some of it was financial um, and my parents got divorced and, but yeah, we were always, uh, I've, I've now lived in my apartment in New York for 11 years, which is the longest I've ever lived you're in nev- one place. You're never going to leave. You're just going <laughs> to just be in the yeah. apartment for the rest <laughs> of your life. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, and uh, drugs like your book deals uh, with drug dealing and cocaine and stuff like that. Like, did you uh, like? Was there a lot of that in the place that you grew up? Like, were you involved with that as a kid? Yeah, I mean, it's. I don't know why, but the county that I grew up in has always been kind of notorious for illicit behavior. Um, it's the big, it's the moonshine capital of the world, and uh, there were always. Uh, you know, I was aware that there were always like drug dealers there. I think it's kind of it's kind of a crossroads between um, it's kind of like you know in the hills when you first start to get into the mountains. So I think it's a good like crossroad point to like distribute or something. But um, yes, there has always been a lot of drugs there, and actually now it's much worse. You know, since I left. What with, but, like, um, the, with the meth and stuff like that? It's not really meth, um, though. I think we are leading the state now in meth. Lab seizures or something. I don't know. Every time I talk to my, yeah, I don't know. But it's and it's also like shake and bake mess, which is completely idiotic. Um, You don't. You can make it like in your car or something. But, (laughs) um, yeah, it was always cocaine was always the main drug, at least when I was growing up. And then I left in two thousand and one. And since then, really, you know, prescription pills, yeah. Oxycontin, and has taken over, like, to the point where it's just, it, you know, when I ever ask about someone I went to high school with, or, like, either in jail or rehab, or, you know, it's just <laughs> oh this God. horrible. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you didn't leave, you kind of get got caught up in it. Did you, was that part of what made you want to leave? Do you think that you, uh, do you think that you had, like, some sort of instinctive sense that, like, if I don't get out of here, things aren't going to end well? Oh, yeah, definitely. I was definitely aware of that. You know, I was just going to, like, have some babies with some dude and, like, live in a trailer and be a cokehead for the rest of my life. I was pretty aware that that was, like, the alternative. Um, So, yeah. But I was – but to me, like, I just had a lot of fun. But, of course, it like, you know, there are a lot of consequences of being, like, fucked up all the time. But, you know, I was also a teenager, and it was fun to – party and yeah. um you know so you're like you're so resilient because i like i was just thinking like as we were as you were talking about like the oxycontin and the and the shake and bake meth and all that what was going through my head was it sounds so fucking exhausting like i'm i'm almost 40 like i had my time but i just couldn't do it if i wanted to like it's just how do people do that it's it just sounds so tiring to put your body through that and you know, I guess, you know, once you're deep enough into it, it's just, I don't know. I guess you just don't even think about it. But I don't, I, I, I look back on my youth and I guess uh, I'm sort of amazed at like the resiliency of your mind and your body at that age. Because when I was that age, I didn't even think twice about it. Yeah. And it was, and it was fun, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, I mean, like, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you could do, you know, you could stay up all night and still go to school. You know, I was very good at school, too. I was always, you know, it's not like I was, like, uh, some dropout or something. 
So I would just go to school and do work and then, you know, go out. It was not, which I don't think I could do now. Like I get, you know, I would probably need like a three days to recover or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean like, so were you going to school wasted? I mean, I know you were partying overnight, but like, were you one of those people who could like, you know, smoke a joint and then go to school all day or, or more? Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah, I was lucky that I, uh, it didn't, well, I went to like a really shitty public school too. I don't know if like, you know, it wasn't like some boarding school or something. Um, but yeah, school was always easy for me. So I, I was not one of the people who had to like study a lot or anything. I just kind of showed up there and like took the test and, and then that, left. <laughs> and that was it. Okay. And so, yeah. um, and you said your parents divorced, like how old were you when that happened? I was 11, which is a terrible age. I was going to um, say. So did you like rebel? Like, was it, was there like bad behavior stemming from that? Yeah. I was pretty angry about it though. It was for the best cause they had a pretty terrible marriage, but, um, yeah, I was, and then after that, um, you know, it's just a lot of like angling as far as, you know, who's, which parent is going to be your favorite now. Um, or at least my parents are acting like that. So my mom was subsequently became very permissive and kind of just let me do whatever I wanted because she wanted to be friends, I guess. Um, so I, I, you know, I never had a curfew. I could be like, I'm going out with my friends, you know, see you in three days or something. And she would never really question it. So. Just, just because she didn't want to like lose your, like she didn't want to not be the favorite. I think so. Yeah. Hmm. That's, sort of, that's sort of sweet in a way. Like, I mean, you know, I guess, <laughs> I guess. I'm thinking about my daughter. Like, I have a young daughter and it's like, God, what am I going to do when I have to start? Like, do I give her a curfew? Like, do you, do you looking back, do you wish you would have had a curfew? Yeah, I think curfews are good. Rules are good. Limits are good. You know, it was just a free for all. I had it was, and it was chaotic because I could, you know, I was like fifteen, and I'm like, oh yeah, I totally know what I'm doing, hanging out <laughs> with these older men, which I did not. So. Oh my god! So you were hanging out with older guys? Yeah. How yeah. old? Like how much older? Are we talking like twenty five year olds? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like in their twenties, not like fifty year olds, but um. Okay. Yeah. But like, dude, dudes that like were like old enough to be professionals. And so how did you meet them? You're out at like bars and stuff or you're going to parties? Yeah. Like, like, you know, house parties. And my best friend was dating an older guy and through her, I met a bunch of people and you kind of just meet everybody within a week or something. There's not that many people there. So. <laughs> <laughs> the, team, the teeming metropolis. Well, and you know, the thing too, though, is like, as I recall, just kind of like hitchhiking around that area and staying in little weird motels when I would come down out of the mountains to resupply is that like, it, it's sort of a free for all place in a lot of ways. Like there's stuff going on up in those Hills that like nobody knows about. Uh, it's a, you know, I guess that's the truth in any like mountain range or like desolate location. You can get away with kind of living however you want. And, uh, I imagine you saw some of that. Like, are there people living up there just like the subsistence farming or shooting things? Like off the grid? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, though, you know, there are people who, I, I think a lot of that is wrapped up in like weird religious reasons like the people who actually live off the grid so those are definitely not people i was hanging out with um <laughs> and then there are people <laughs> and then there are people who are just like you know poverty is is pretty bad um so there are people who are just really shit poor who are uh have very basic amenities you know 
Yeah. Um, so you're meeting. These... Also, not really. He was. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say. So you're meeting. The, so you're with your friend. You had like a. Do you have like a best friend, or do you, were you running with like a little group of uh, friends, or? Yeah, I had a best friend, and then there are like a bunch of guys we hung out with. Okay. So how did? Yeah. And, and you say you just met him around town, or like your friend knew somebody, and then uh, were you dating like in high school, like these older guys? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I mean like that socially, like that changes the game for you. Cause you must've been going to high school, like hanging out with all these like pubescent teenage boys. Like that's a different game. Cause I remember what I was like when I was like 16 years old. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was completely uninterested in anyone my own age. <laughs> um, yeah. Cause I was with these older guys who I thought were just, I mean, they were, they were men. So it was different. Did you get into any trouble, like with the law, or did you? I mean, did you ever get into a situation where you were like afraid? I never got into trouble with the law. I was very lucky, and also I'm kind of I'm kind of a careful. Though it doesn't sound like it, I'm a pretty careful person. Um, but yeah, I definitely. Well, I put myself in situations that now, looking back on it, I'm scared for myself. <laughs> but uh, at the time, I was just like, whatever, um, and nothing it's kind of amazing. Nothing really bad ever happened. So, and I left when I was 18. So it kind of limited the time period anyways, you know? Yeah. It was like a two, it was like a two or three year stretch, three year stretch. Yeah. It's weird too. Like that's another part of looking back on your youth. Uh, especially if you made it out of your youth, if you were like a, a risk taker of any kind is that so much of it is luck. And I, that's another part of like now being a dad that freaks me out is that you kind of have to let your kid, to a certain extent, have some freedom to make mistakes. And then once they leave the house, they're going to do whatever they want, obviously. But so much of it seems like luck. Like you could have easily gotten into a car or gone to a party with some weirdo or – you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I could have done – I mean there are so many times things could have gone wrong uh, for me, but they didn't. So I guess that's just life. You just got to have to hopefully get a, a lucky hand of cards. Yeah, no, I do feel very lucky overall. And but it also sounds like as as risky as risk, you know, um, what's the word? Not risk averse, but as risky as your behavior was, that you have some street smarts and you have some sort of governor on your behavior. Because I think that's part of it too. Like I always felt like I had one foot in reality. Like I was never completely bonkers like some of my friends, <laughs> who just yeah. they just you know they weren't thinking at all about their own well being. They they were just in the moment. And I don't feel like I ever had the ability to be that completely immersive. There was always a part of me that was watching myself. Like, were you that way? Yes, definitely. Uh, you know, you meet people, you just know they're just going to be junkies for the rest of their life. They're just so into it, you know, <laughs> like you can't, you know, they just throw themselves into it. And I was never like that. I was definitely, yeah, like you said, like kind of watching yourself from the outside. That's a good way to put it. So you never, did you ever, you never struggle with addiction or anything? I mean, it was uh, not to the extent that, that I want to say, like, I'm, like, a recovering addict or anything like that because I've, you know, I've seen that firsthand and it's terrible. And um, But it definitely, like, went to bad places and I, you know, I was, you know, I had to be in rehab and stuff like that. But it it was, it was never to the point where I, you know, sold everything I owned and was, like, out on the street or anything. So, so are you sober now? Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, you are okay. So you don't do anything. I mean, mostly. <laughs> mostly. What, what do you allow? What do you allow yourself? Oh, uh, you know, I mean, I allow myself, you know, weekends here and there, but, uh, but mostly. mostly. And I drink, you know, whenever I want. 
Okay. 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 So, like, but like, that's the thing though is that when you talk about certain friends who just from the first moment are gung ho, I just there's got to be a genetic component. There's something like there's some bell that goes off in certain people's bodies or heads or whatever when they get involved with chemicals that you know I just luckily don't have, and it's uh. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but then you also see it further down the line when things really start to escalate and get bad, and it's just an ugly situation. And it's it feels like uh, otherly. It feels like something else. Uh, is it, I don't know if I'm describing this well, but do, do you know what I'm saying? It feels like a thing that yeah. that uh, that they have that they don't have control over. It's just kind of like a curse. That's what I mean to say. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of that in my own family. I don't know how i escape it exactly but um yeah it's definitely a disease so it sounds and it sounds but it sounds like to me um because i feel like i've talked to people uh, either on this program or in my life before like there's some people just have like really good survival instincts like you sound like you're probably a pretty tough person and that you have good survival instincts is that accurate yeah i mean i definitely can go in I think one of my strengths is I can go into any situation and kind of figure it out and what you figure out what I need to do to survive it or excel in it or whatever. Um, and I'm not, I'm not like, uh, I don't get caught up in things easily. Like I can also like see how I could take myself out of it. Um, but I don't know if that's like, but yeah, I'm into surviving and staying alive. <laughs> <laughs> You're in pro, general. <laughs> pro survival. Yeah. Okay. And so what about books and, you know, books specifically, but also more broadly, like art, like what factor, how did that factor into your youth and into your, you know, your uh, interest in New York City and your interest in getting out of where you were, you know, were, were you informed by that? Yeah, definitely. I've always wanted, you know, I've always, I don't know why exactly. Maybe my mother, my mother's kind of, um artsy and would introduce me to different things um but I've always been drawn to any kind of art music writing you know visual arts um I was I did ballet pretty seriously and I always wanted to be a ballerina and thought that's how I was going to get out (laughs) but uh ended up not being the case and I also loved film I actually uh went to New York to go to film school to go to Tisch because uh, I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. How did you go? So you, um, you applied to Tish and got in right out of high school? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you just packed up and went? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, so what, but like, um, that must have been a big change. Like, what was that? Mo- I mean, were you, when you arrived, were you ready for it? Or were you, when you arrived, were you overwhelmed? Or both? Uh, I was ready for it. I wasn't overwhelmed at all. Um, it was weird, though, because I moved to New York in August 2001, and then two weeks later was 9-11. Um, Perfect. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and I was, like, living in the storm on Union Square in New York, which is kind of where everyone went after 9-11 to gather and, like, I don't know, sing songs in a circle or something. Um so it was, like, it was just surreal. Like, you know, as soon as I got there, I'm, like, standing on Fifth Avenue watching the twin towers fall down and everyone's out on the street screaming. And I was just totally, uh, I don't know. That's I didn't kind of, yeah, <laughs> I was like, did not know how to process that. No. How could you, do you think you'll ever write about that? I mean, I know so many people have written their personal essays and their personal accounts of that, but does that sit in the back, of your, sit in the back of your mind that I should maybe one day try to like sort that out in a memoir or something? 
Yeah, I don't know if I would write like a memoir, but the thing that I'm writing now kind of has to do with that, the new novel. Yeah, it definitely has to do with 9-11, which is, I kind of haven't sorted out in my brain exactly what it has to do with it, but... <laughs> well, once, once you get to about 200,000 words, I'm sure you'll start... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so what did you do? Like, you were living in a dormitory uh, near Union mm-hmm. Square, so then... 9-11 happens, all these people start to flood into the square. Like, did you go down into the streets, or were you, like, sitting in your dorm room on your computer, or what, what were you doing? <laughs> well, and I started I started having a relationship with, there were all these street kids, you know. I mean, there still are, but at that time, there were even more of them. So I started dating one of these street kids. <laughs> um, like, uh, like, right there the, that day, or before? <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, for real. I met him, you know, because everybody was in Union Square and he was there. And, uh, of course, he was, like, fabulously wealthy and, like, grew up on the Upper East Side or something. But then he became, like, a junkie and was living on the street. And um, Oh, my God. That's like... So, I, yeah. I went, I went to Boulder. <laughs> I went to Boulder for undergrad. And there was a lot of, like, hippie kids, like, living on pearl street or whatever and they would then like they'd be begging for change and then they would get into like a range rover <laughs> yeah exactly what's up with, what's up with that uh, yeah um yeah i think at one point we were together he got some money from his dad or something he got like twenty thousand dollars which he took out in cash and was just carrying around with him and was like so fucked up that he left it like in this pizza place where we having pizza <laughs> and they returned it to him. I was like, what? I mean, it was just cash. <laughs> oh my God. They should have at least gotten yeah. like a 10% for being good people. Yeah, they really should have. <laughs> I, I always, you know what? I always think that whenever like there's like something like that happens and it's in the news where it's like, you know, like a man found like $50,000 in cash, you know, on the sidewalk, like. I want to know that that man for returning it got at least five grand. Like I know that he shouldn't feel obligated to get anything, but whoever gets that money back should be like, here you go, dude. You know, like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I feel like there should be some sort of like reward for being a good person. There really should, but I don't know if there is. So, okay. So this is interesting to me. Uh, you're, it's nine 11, you're in your dorm. Uh, the attacks happen. You go down into the streets, you meet a street kid and start dating him. This sounds terrible. <laughs> no, but it, I, I think it's, see, this is this to me sounds like narrative. This sounds very interesting because the reason it, the reason I think it's interesting is that um, I, I, I one of my you know closest friends here in town like she met her husband the week after nine eleven. There was like the whole phenomenon of like nine eleven sex or, or they called it Armageddon sex. Yeah, and it was like people were so uh, devastated and felt so raw, but yet they were out and they were you know there was like these you know these barriers came down between people. And strangers were more conversant, and then people were in a lot of like emotional and like psychological pain, and sex would try to like uh, you know medicate that, I guess, or whatever. But um, that seems like sort of uh, emblematic of that, you know. Like, you, like it, to me, it uh, illustrates the trauma that you must have been feeling, even if you couldn't necessarily like articulate it at the time. Yeah, it was, but it was also like I just wanted to like do drugs with somebody. Um, <laughs> Um, it was like a lot. I don't know. Um, you're like, dude, you're like, dude, had, you're making it sound way too poetic. I just wanted to get high. Um, yeah. Cause I had just moved to New York. I mean, I, I had loved New York from afar, but I didn't really understand what it meant to be, to live in New York like I do now. Like if it happened now, I would be devastated. You know, I would, cause I really understand New York so much better. And, um, 
I really feel like it's my home now. But, you know, when I first moved there, I was uh, just kind of, I mean, it was a wild, like everybody was just out on the street and, um, you know, there were definitely a lot of just like random connections for sure. Okay. So you went to Tisch, you got your film degree. No, Uh, actually, um, I transferred after my first year because I hated actually the process of making films. So I transferred to this other part of NYU, which is what I graduated from. What was the other part? It's called Gallatin. It's like where you make your own major. Okay. Sounds <laughs> ideal. Um, See, we sound similar because I went to film school as an undergraduate. And when I got there, I found that I hated making films. Like I don't like machines. <laughs> yeah. And I don't like to, exactly. col- I don't like to collaborate. Uh, exactly. And it was just like tedium. It was tedium. And I was like, okay, I want to write, I want to write stories and I want to have total control. Um, you know, I don't want to have to be like, com- you know, working by committee or whatever. Uh, is that how you were? I mean, I guess it's probably, how yeah. You- so you, so you, then you go and you make your own major and, and what did you make? It was like basically just all the creative writing courses I could take. And then it was not very cohesive. Like some people had these amazing majors with like cool titles and stuff, but it was basically just creative writing and like some, uh, you know, like English classes on the side. So and, and I wrote like a bad novel for my thesis or whatever. <laughs> but you knew, but you knew, but you knew then that that was what you wanted to do. Yes. Yeah. And the writers that were inspiring you then, or some of them, um, then I was, you know, I was not ever really well read. You know, I didn't grow up in a place where I, there were a lot of books around or people to tell me what to read and I just kind of figured things out for myself. So I was definitely, I loved Flannery O'Connor. I still do, but I was really into her at that point. Um, and I'm trying to think about what I was reading. And then I would read like, you know, any like kind of like book that had a drug angle to it <laughs> you know like uh dennis johnson uh like the dennis cooper like try guide that whole series um uh and then all the stuff that like you read when you're a teenager like burrows and stuff like that um did you have do you have like because you're from the south like do you have any like really strong affinity for southern literature do you feel like i mean you're uh, you know young god has uh it's place in the South. Like, do you feel like a, I don't know. And I like, do you identify that way at all? Yeah, I don't identify necessarily as a Southern writer, I guess, because I don't think all my books are going to be set there. Like the new book I'm writing is set in New York and has nothing to do with the South. Um, but I, of course I love Southern writing and I mean, it's where I grew up and I, I understand, I understand it. It just makes sense to me. Um, it's a different place. And definitely, the South. Yeah. I mean, my folks are from Louisiana, so I grew up going down there. Like, uh, I was just down there a couple of weeks ago for a wedding and it's like, every time I'm there, I'm like, this is just different. Uh, and, <laughs> and I, I guess people would say the same thing if they went to New York or they went to Los Angeles, but just as a region, it feels, um, really culturally distinct or apart from yeah. the rest of the country. Yeah. I think it's, and it's, uh, you know, it's homogenized even, you know, cause everybody has, you know, the internet now and, uh, but it's still like very specific, um, especially in the really rural parts, which is where I grew up. 
So do you uh, do you still listen to Southern music? I mean, yeah, I know you like some of the Southern writers, but you don't listen to bluegrass. You can't stand bluegrass. I oh, my God. I hate it. I hate it. I can never listen to country music ever my whole life. Um, we actually have this this huge bluegrass festival in my county. It's like the biggest bluegrass thing in America, and everybody loves it. And I would just go there to, like, get acid from the hippies who would come to, like... <laughs> That was, by the way, that was me in like, you know, for a year and a half of my existence. Okay. I, I was, because I went to Boulder, I was a hippie and I remember like there was this thing where you were like really into, we were all supposed to be into like, you know, these uh, jam bands and then if you got really sophisticated, you'd be like, yeah, but it's all about bluegrass because that's what the guys who were playing in the jam bands actually listen to when they're not, you know, I don't know what it was, but I went through like a, a bluegrass phase. I do like some bluegrass music, but I cannot get into anything pop country. I don't, I don't understand. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. No, I was really into punk rock when I was in high school, and then now, I guess you know, like uh, my husband runs a hip hop magazine, um, so I like listen to a lot of hip hop, not really by choice, but um. <laughs> what, ma- what, ma- what magazine does he run? Let's plug it. Uh, he runs the Source, which is like a big hip hop magazine. Okay. Um. And he started this other one called Double XL, which is the other big one. So he's like very entrenched in that world. Um, you, are you like hanging around with hip hop stars and stuff? Yeah, I, <laughs> I sometimes hang out hang out with rappers. But um, tell me some stories. You've got to have some good stories about, about rappers. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what I can say. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, pic- I'm picturing you in like limousines or something, or I don't know. But did there, any good yeah. any good anecdotes? You don't even have to name anybody. You could just like tell the story if it's a good one without names. Um, I'm trying to see. I don't actually like personally hang out with them that much because okay. um, I'm not sleeping with them. So <laughs> 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 I'm sure if I was a groupie, I would have some good stories about it. Yeah. Well, okay. So uh, just to keep tracing, like you get out of Tish, you finish. Uh, with your self-constructed degree program, you know that you want to be a writer, and then you go on to get your MFA at Columbia. Yes. Was that pretty quick after you left Tisch or NYU? Uh, no, I well, I guess so. I worked for like two years, and I was just like, I'm such a terrible secretary, you know, that I should really <laughs> try to get an MFA or something. So, um, so yeah, I spent like two years in the workforce, and then I went to Columbia. Okay, and you got in. I mean, what did you submit to get into yeah. Columbia? Like a section of this novel, or? Yeah, sort of. It was like the first thing I tried to write. It was something that didn't end up in the book, but it was like a scene where Nikki and her father, Nikki's the main character, and her father rob a house together, which didn't make it into the book. But that's what I submitted. And then, who did you who did you study under at Columbia? Were there teachers that had a particularly big impact? Yeah. Um, Stacy Durasmo was one of my teachers. Oh, uh, I'm talking to I'm talking to her on Monday. Okay, yeah, she's amazing. Um, she was really great. And then Ben Marcus was the head of the program, and he was really amazing. And uh, I took a class with Zadie Smith, which I was too terrified to speak during, but <laughs> yeah, what's she, it was great. What is she like? I've always wanted to talk to her, but I've never been able to get through. Like, what's she like? She's very intimidating, or at least to me. I don't know. She's beautiful. She's British. She has a you know a British accent, and she's yeah. really really smart. I'm already terrible. Um, yeah, <laughs> but uh, I actually wrote this paper, and then she read some of my uh, some of my w- book, 
And uh, she wrote me this really amazing letter saying that she knew I would be a writer and that I would succeed. And uh, I had it, like, hanging on my wall for, like, three years. So. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's nice. What did you, so it was really nice. Where, where is it now? Where's the letter now? Well, I had to change my whole wall for my new book, so it's like I should put it back up there, though. <laughs> yeah. I took it down. But you saved it. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. I have it. Okay, so um, how far along were you? I mean, I, I think I actually uh, asked you, or we talked about this earlier with respect to Chris Paris Lamb. So you were working on it at Columbia, and then there was another three-year period or four-year period after the MFA program where you continued to hammer away at the book and get it into shape. Yeah. Did you ever doubt yourself or like feel like this is never going to happen? Yeah. Like every day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, It was, it's pretty, it's so hard to write a novel. I mean, it sounds so frivolous. Like when you really think about it, like what are you doing all day? You're like making up stories that like 30 people are going to read, but um, it's really hard. Uh, I'm amazed that anybody does it um so yeah and then when i started cutting it back so severely then i got worried that like nobody was gonna buy it because it's like <laughs> how, how many <laughs> words know, how so many short. words how many words was it in its final form it's like twenty two thousand or something like that how many twenty two thousand really yeah something like oh. that oh my god that is really short <laughs> it is and so, okay, did you have discussions? Because that really is unusual because novels, I mean, there's no rules. But they say mm-hmm. that like a short story tends to be what, like 15,000 or less. Uh, then there's like novella territory between 15 and uh, fifteen and 60. Sometimes you say 15 and 50. Like uh, I know that The Great Gatsby is like 47,000 words or 45,000 words. Um, what's another one that uh, – Slaughterhouse-Five is like 47,000 words. You know, so there are there – are, classic novels that are on the shorter end. And I love when a book is compact. I love that. I love when there's no wasted motion. And I just read uh, Jenny Offel's book, Department of Speculation, which I really loved. And um, it can't be more than 20,000, you know, 20,000 words total, you know, but I feel like when you get a book like that and it doesn't feel like there's anything missing, then the author's done so much of the heavy lifting, if not all of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. There's something sort of beautiful about that. There's no wasted motion. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a minimalist and I love things, you know, I like everything like as <laughs> tight as possible. Um, yeah, that's totally the kind of books I love. You know, my favorite book ever is probably the prime of Miss Jean Brody, which is like perfectly constructed and, uh, probably like 150 pages or something, you know? Um, so when you were writing, yeah, I like things that are constructed well. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm like in the midst of a project like this, and what I find is that um, I have these little short bits, right? And I'm sort of collage, you know, I guess collaging them or trying to sequence them, and trying to make sure that there is a narrative to it. That's the hard part. Is that like you do have to have, you know, really good narrative architecture underpinning it, even if it feels or if it reads sort of um, episodic or. If there's non sequitur, you know, and you're flashing, like it, you still have to have that momentum and you still have to make sure that it's all undergirded by um, the right foundation. Am I using the right words? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> did you find yourself as you were going, like, and you're doing all this cutting, did it ever get, like, how did you keep it from getting unwieldy? Like, how did you keep yourself organized? You have 100,000 words and you take a knife to it. I'm imagining that there's, like, pieces all over the floor or whatever. 
Um, did you ever feel like, oh shit, this whole thing's just come apart. I should just light it on fire. <laughs> I mean, yes and no. Um, but I guess for me, I knew, I knew what the, the plot was or just, um, the, what the story was. And that was, and it said, you know, it's in first person and I mean, it's not in first person. It's in, um, present tense. And, um, so it just was like driving forward the whole time, you know? So I, I knew what had to happen. Um, a lot of what I cut out was uh, just, like, really horrible interiority where she's, like, just thinking all the time about stuff. Like, you know, it was just so freeing to be like, okay, yes, her mother died, like, and she just moves on. She doesn't need to, like, dwell on it for 20 pages. Um, so I just had – I knew the structure that was underneath, which is the basic things that happen in the book and how to get her from point A to point Z or whatever. But, um, but like connective tissue, time shifts, mm-hmm. you know, because like I find that time shifting in um, writing is is difficult to do well, especially when there's like a, a leap or a jump cut or, you know, to make mm-hmm. it to make it feel seamless for the reader. Like, did you um, did you ever struggle with that? No, for some reason, that comes pretty easily to me. You know, um, I, I just have some instinct or something like I'm a very like instinctual writer. I just. Uh, I don't like analyze it a lot, but um, I just kind of know where where to end things and where to pick them back up. I don't know why. Uh, it's just kind of I have this narrative, uh, like what works best. I'm kind of really aware of that. Um, and uh, I really like to just like get in and out of a scene as quickly as possible. <laughs> so I can relate to that. So how how yeah. how. <laughs> How instrumental was uh, Chris Paris Lamb? Like, was he reading and giving you notes and helping you cut? He didn't help me cut, but he was great. He definitely gave me notes as to, like, uh, what I could, you know, like, broad notes, kind of, like, you need to make this relationship stronger throughout the novel. Uh, And then um, I did, like, a couple revisions for him, and then we sent it out. It wasn't like a long revision revision so you, process. You, you sent out a twenty-two thousand word novel, and FSG bought it. Was there any? Did it, was there any pushback? Were they like, you know what, we like this, but we want to see you double the length at least? Or no, it was funny because you know from the beginning, Chris was he was great. Was like, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to sell this, and I think he has like a hundred percent sell rate, right? Can you tell like you that? that? Something, something like, <laughs> something that. like it's, that. It's good. Yeah. It's good because, and that's you know, it's really good. So what did he say? Oh, so he was like, I, you know, he was very honest. Like, I don't know if we're going to be able to sell this, but I love it. And, you know, fuck everybody that doesn't like it, how it is. And that was kind of our, you know, philosophy when we sent it out. And there were definitely some people, some other publishers that were like, you know, we love this, but she has to, she has to add at least 10,000 words. Just give me like 30,000 words. And we were like, no, um, so FSG never said that. They were like, we love this book. We want to buy it immediately. So, bless, And, you know, bless Chris for being like that. And, and I think there's a place. I mean, there's certainly a place for me as a reader for books that you can read in a single sitting, for books that um, are pared down like that. I love that. I don't know. I can't say it enough. I feel like there's not – I feel like, if anything, there's not enough of these books. Uh, especially, and maybe it has something to do with my attention span. I don't know, <laughs> uh, but to me, it, it just feels like, to me, it feels like, I, like so much work goes into getting down to that, 
22,000 words, you know, and I don't necessarily know if that's visible to somebody who might just like pick the book up randomly at a bookstore and who isn't like invested in this kind of thing. But like, I I just admire the artistry that goes into, you know, creating a a full feeling narrative that doesn't have any kind of like meat on the bone or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So uh, I don't think it's go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to reiterate what you said. That I think a lot of like you know, lay people or people who don't write don't understand. They're like, "Oh, you must have written this in two weeks." <laughs> yeah. So, I think it's actually almost easier to write a longer. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. It seems like almost easier though to to have this like fleshier narrative. Like, I, I feel like there's not. Uh, I, I can't speak in too broad of a generality, but I think that there's a ton of thought. It feels like there's a lot of thought work that goes into minimalist writing and i you know i was just reading like a profile of uh, lydia davis uh you know it was in the new yorker a while back and you know obviously she's all about that and like she just spent so much time noodling over like a single word in a sentence <laughs> um, yeah but isn't that what we're supposed to be doing like you know what i'm saying like isn't I, I guess there's different ways to skin the cat but it feels to me like okay this person's done the work and now they're delivering me what i need essentially and nothing else you know they've, they've cut through all the tall grass you know right um good way to look at it oh uh, yeah i guess so so anyhow um <laughs> the book goes out you get a sale um chris paris lamb's track record is secure <laughs> did you feel, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> did you feel any pressure where you're like oh shit i'm gonna be the one he doesn't sell uh i didn't actually know that at the time that he sold everything he ever sent out so um no, I didn't feel any pressure. Well, that's the thing about it. I mean, that's the thing about it is that, you know, obviously the work always has to stand up on its own. But I do feel like when an agent has the kind of momentum that he has, um, it can't help but help the author. Like in terms of uh, the advance that you might get or the attention that the book might get, the speed with which editors read, you know, the seriousness with which they consider, uh, the sense that, well, if this guy's sending it out, it has to be good, which, ought to, you know, all that stuff matters. Like you landed in a good spot, I feel like. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I'm sure it's because he doesn't send out that many that much stuff. Like everything he sends out, he loves. So, it you know it makes a huge difference. So, did, is it a more than? Uh, did you get a, a multiple book deal? Like, is the next book that you're writing also going to be with FSG, or is it going to just go out again? Uh, yeah, I don't have a multiple deal. They have an option. So okay. But um. And how far along are you in it? Oh. <laughs> um. Is the very first draft right now. Okay. It's early. So, That's okay. Not, not very far. I won't even, I'm not going to ask you what it's about. It's the worst question ever. Uh, so I can tell you what it's about. You, but you said something about 9-11. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I mean, I know what it's about. It's about a, um, a prostitute junkie terrorist. That's what it's about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and then what are you doing for this book in terms of tour? Like, have you thought through... Because uh, I noticed, like, when I went to your website, like, your author photo is really striking. Like, you've taken photos that are like, seem to be, like, designed to provoke at least a little bit. Um, they're not that, like, I think of author photos, and they're usually, like, some dude in, like, high-waisted jeans and, like, a turtleneck or something. Like, <laughs> like your author photos seem sort of, like, they're professionally taken. I guess maybe your husband works for Source. He probably has access to photographers and the like. But um, have you thought through, like, how to promote? I mean, is that something you've invested yourself in? Yeah, actually, my husband took all those photos. He's a photographer oh, okay. as well. well there, um, there you have it. <laughs> um, 
yeah, it's something I definitely think about. I'm definitely conscious of how I present myself. Um, I find it weird that other writers aren't, um, especially because most other artists are pretty um, – think about think a lot about how they present themselves to the world like think of any musician or visual artist or anyone else and then writers are just kind of like you know you get like a yearbook picture basically (laughs) um right right, exactly (laughs) and you know it just can't hurt that there's so much noise in the world and there's so many books that come out just every day you know you have to do something to be like look at me so. so, okay. So what, uh, what else? Like, you know, you, you sit down, like, have you, I mean, do you have a publicist at FSG that you're strategizing with, or did you, did you sit down on your own and think like, all right, so I'm going to do, uh, some photos. I'm going to, are you going to blog? Are you going to do journalism stuff? Like, is there any sort of strategy in place for how to get this thing noticed? Um, no, I, this, I came up, you know, uh, to do the, the photos I've been doing for a long time. Um, even I had this other website just when we sent the book out to get the book deal that was just just photos of me. Um, so wait, you, uh, you, you, wait, you went when you went out with the book uh, like yeah. in the sales process. You had like a website up with just photos of you. Yeah. <laughs> wow, um, that's that seems sort yeah. of like brash. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, and, you know, I had, like, a morphine pill on my tongue. I had, like, my tongue out, and uh-huh. I was wearing sunglasses with a morphine pill on my tongue. <laughs> um, so it was. It was definitely, like, you know, like I said, you have to do something to get people to look at you in this, uh, you know, because I don't do social media at all. Oh, you um, don't? I was going to ask. You don't do No. Any, why not? No. I don't I, It's just not comfortable for me. Like, I'm kind of a private person, which sounds weird if you look at the pictures, but, um, <laughs> I'm pretty, I don't know. And also I just feel like my Twitter would be so boring. It'd be like, here I am writing again. You know, there would be no like bitches and piles of Coke, which is like what I like to look at it on Instagram. So <laughs> <laughs> really, you, um, you look at people's like drug photos on Instagram. I've never done Instagram. Oh yeah. Okay. They're pretty funny. There's some guy that I I don't know his name is, but, um, yeah, so I just feel like, and also I'm a control freak, so I want to just present like a certain version of myself to the world anyways. <laughs> what, and what is the version? Like, do you know, like, what do you want to present? Like when you, cause this is something like I wrestle with because I, I, I get what you're saying and I probably, I think a majority of me agrees with you that, yeah, you want to be very careful about how you present yourself to the world. Um, the, the problem with this show at least is that it's sort of, defi- you know, it works against that because you, it, you can't edit. I mean, I guess you can edit, but you know, I'm talking on this thing twice a week and like Lord only knows what I've said. So at, at, a, <laughs> right. cer- at a certain point, you kind of have to divorce yourself from the tendency to want to control everything. And you just kind of, kind of let yourself be out there warts and all. Um, but you know, so I, I get the idea of the, you wanting to cultivate a certain image and wanting to be very careful about how you present, but I also think it can be overdone. Like, do you have a sense of uh, middle ground there? And do you, can you articulate like what image it is that you want to present? I mean, I know, I don't know if I can like articulate and say exactly, but I know like what I like. And, um, this is actually like, you know, if you see me in the photos, that's how I dress anyways, you know, just every day. Um, So I have, like, a certain aesthetic, which I've really had for a long time, probably since I was, like, 15. Uh, What do you call that? Is it, like, punk punk rock? I don't know what I call it. Sometimes I call it, like, uh, trashy Russian 
mistress or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's sort of, but is it like it, sort of gothy suicide girl? No, it's not quite that. No, it's definitely not suicide girls. Okay. Um, like I have no tattoos. Um, no. Yeah, it's like you, you know, have no tattoos. None. I have none. I don't have any either. I just, but I can't decide. But that might see. This might be an outgrowth of the fact that, like, you like to be in control. Like, I can't decide what to get. If I knew what to, if I could decide on something and feel like this is something I permanently want to have, like, on me, but I can never get to that point. I'm always like, I'd want to get it off. I'd want to like change it. Yeah, and could you even imagine what you would have gotten when you were like 17? It just. Would've Makes been, my skin crawl to even think about it. <laughs> would have been like a banjo, a bluegrass banjo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. right. just, just what you want to show the world mm. when you're 30s. Uh, well, that's <laughs> that's interesting. I feel like you would have been a girl who would have gone out and gotten some tattoos just because you had kind of like a wild streak or I don't know, but you didn't do that. No. <laughs> um, I like tattoos. Though. I mean, my husband has a ton of them. Um yeah. I like when they're well done, but... Well, no, I I always joke. I mean, and it's like only a half of a joke, but I automatically feel like artistically inferior to anybody who has lots of tattoos. Like, I feel like... (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like, they're edgier. They know shit I don't do. Well... Something. I feel like... At this point, though, everybody... Everybody has something, so... It's kind of more... It's way more rebellious to have nothing, I think. That's right. It's going to come back around. Pretty soon, we're going to be edgy. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, that's fascinating, you know, and I guess like it's like there's like a a certain aspect of it is discipline, too, because you on the one hand, you want attention. You want your book to be read. You want to make a living, you know, and then and and in order for that to happen, like people have to pay attention to you. And like you say, you have to cut through all that noise. Um, And so I think sometimes like emotionally you can find yourself like coughing stuff up onto the Internet that shouldn't be there, that isn't well considered. Um, and if you want any examples of that, just visit my Twitter feed. Uh, All right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, or visit anybody's Twitter feed. But I mean, you know, pe- people are out there like chirping and like trying to kind of like, look, you know, point the finger at themselves and say, look at me. Um, but I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of that can be wasted motion. And then, you know, you have to be disciplined about how you present. And I think, uh, is, I think that's what you're doing, right? Or trying to do? Yeah, I'm- yeah, I'm very disciplined about that, um, about, um, yeah, what I want to put out into the world. Um, I am gonna, I am writing, like, more personal essays, which make me, like, very nervous, but, um, so there'll be more about me out in the world, I guess, but where are you gonna I'm not going to start are you, are, you, are you strategic about where you would publish those, or, like, you are you pretty open about, like, just putting them up on the internet and... No, I'm not open. (laughs) I definitely want, like, somebody to pay me for it and it to be somewhere, like, good, Um, well-respected. Okay. Do you have your sights set on any place? Like, is there something you're angling for? Um, yeah, there's, like, a couple. I think I might do something for Vice, which would be a good fit. Um, but, you know, and I'd always love to do anything for, you know, the Times or New Yorker or any big publication like that, so... Good. Setting your sights high. Okay. So, uh, yeah. what about, what about, but that's good. That's good. And what about uh, a tour? Like, are you going out on a book tour? Not that I know of. Um, no, I don't think I am. I think if like people want me to come and read in their town, I will definitely go, but there's no tour set up. What about, are you going to read locally in New York? Yeah. Um, do you yeah. like, do you like to do that? No, I hate it. <laughs> I hate reading. <laughs> yeah, me too. 
Uh, yeah. They're pretty brutal. But I guess they serve some purpose that I'm not aware of. Yeah, I, it's, I'm very conflicted about it. I mean, I, I, like the thing about it is that I never say no. Like if somebody's like, "Hey, will you read?" I'm always like, "Okay." I can't. I can't think of a time I've said no unless maybe like I had to be out of town or something. Um, and because you know, you, you, I feel like if I say no, I could be missing an opportunity or it's bad karma. You know, like somebody's nice enough to ask me to come do this. Like just say yes to everything. Uh, I'm still in. I'm still in that mode. You know, it'd be nice to be one of those fancy writers who like says no more than they say yes. But like I'm just not there. And uh, yeah. And then, but then you go do it, and there's like seven people there or 10 people there. Yeah. Nobody really wants to be listening to you. They just want to like have a drink and like chat. <laughs> it's just, it always, it always feels weird. It always feels like, why did I just do that? You know, like why don't people just like meet up for drinks instead? You know? Oh yeah. I will go to any party, but, um, yeah, just tell me you're having a party. I will totally show up. <laughs> and then like, has there been any re- reaction from back home? Like have your folks read the book, like people back, uh, back in North Carolina contacting you like old high school friends who are, you know, in, in, in prison, <laughs> they writing you from jail. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I hope I'd get some prison letters. Um, <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, I haven't, I mean, it just came out on Tuesday, so I haven't heard yet. Um, so I do know that, like, my stepmother's sister has pre-ordered the book for her entire book club. So there you go. That should be fun because <laughs> it's not really a book club book. But I mean, have your have your folks read? Have family members read? Or is it something that you mm-hmm. you don't want them to read? <laughs> I mean, they can read. It. I'm not telling them not to. But uh, I definitely was not like, here's my book. Please read it. You yeah. know, ever. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, it's uh, it's been fun talking to you. Congratulations on the. Uh, on the success and I wish you the best of luck with, uh, with the sales and also with uh, your next project. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay. There you go. That's Catherine Faw Morris. Go get her book. It's called young God. It's a novel. It's available now from Farrar Strauss and Giroux. You can find Catherine online at Catherine Thanks to kill Rockstars as always for all the good music. Be sure to check out kill Don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's free. Did I mention that? You can get it wherever apps are available, whatever device you have. You get the app, and then uh, new episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. And then you can also sign up for premium, $2 a month, 5 bucks for six months of access, or uh, $9 for a full year. That's like like $0.75 a month. You do that, you have access to every single episode, all 270, what, eight? Something like that. Plus the bonus episodes. You get everything. So get the app. It's free. Sign up for premium. That would be great. And uh, I want you to know as well, if you heard the last episode, that the heat in Los Angeles is currently abating. The heat is abating. (laughs) Right now, as we speak. It's weird when the heat breaks. You know how people say that? The heat finally broke? It's it's actually an apt word, because that's what it feels like. It feels like something snaps in the air, and suddenly it's not as hot as it as it just was. And uh, the other day in the middle of this crazy heat wave out here where the entire city was like a convection oven and everything smelled like uh, feet. I was talking to a friend of mine and I was standing outside and I was like, is the sun hotter? Like, are we closer to the sun? What the fuck is going on? But it can't be right. It's not like we're closer to the sun. (laughs) Suddenly we've catapulted closer to the sun or the, or the sun has catapulted closer to us. What is it? How does how does heat happen? I guess it's the air. But it feels like the sun. 
Can somebody help me here? Please remember that Jean Cocteau died of a heart attack and that Tolstoy once referred to Hamlet as, quote, coarse, immoral, mean, and senseless. That's all for now. Thanks again to Catherine Fall Morris. Thanks to FSG. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. I'll be back again soon with with another uh, writer, another uh, publishing-oriented human being, a storyteller of some kind. Just like somebody who works in the narrative arts. Somebody who's involved narratively somehow. Who's affiliated with the process, if you know what I mean. Why does everything have to be so complicated? (laughs) 